Saying goodbye to a dog is never easy. In fact, it is probably one of the hardest things that we dog lovers have to deal with. And the decision on when to say goodbye and scheduling the final vet appointment is one of the most difficult things imaginable. And the grief, the grief, it comes in bouts and it can take your breath away. I know that grief because this past Saturday, we had to say goodbye to Rue, one of my Maltese. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and welcome to The Long Leash. So instead of an interview with Victoria Stilwell, which we had promised for today and which will be on the show next week, today, in part to honor the passing of my beloved Rue, we are revisiting a very special Long Leash episode with Lori Levine. It's a conversation which touched my heart when I spoke with her earlier this year, and it feels extra pertinent now. Lori is a business owner in New York. She is a consummate dog lover and an animal rescuer who just says yes with a big heart. But her heart was broken not once, not twice, but three times when she had to say goodbye to her three older dogs in quick succession over just a few months. In this long and intimate conversation, Lori has much to offer to all of us on how to navigate through and process grief, and more importantly, how to be really there for your dog at the end of their life, which is something that most of us will have to deal with. Lori's advice and words of wisdom were very much appreciated by my wife Molly and I this past Saturday. Now you may want to grab a tissue because you could shed a tear or two, but I promise you, you will also laugh because Lori is one very funny lady. Here is Lori Levine. 2020 was a pretty crummy year for you, right? In probably lots of ways. You're in New York City. I am. I mean, it was crummy for everyone, but it was crummy for us for so many other ways. I mean, it wasn't enough that, you know, we had to deal with the pandemic. But then we had three very geriatric dogs that we had to take care of in two different places because my husband um, and I have a house in Connecticut and we have a place here in the city. And we kept Suki, our little Shih Tzu, with us always because she's small enough to transport. But as the Labradors got older, they could only spend time in the Connecticut house. And what ended up being great about the pandemic is that they had 24-7 care because I have four stepchildren who are all adults now. And there was always someone in the house. And suddenly we got to see everything that was happening with them. Oh, are you having trouble with steps? Let's build a ramp. Oh, is it hard for you to get around the block, Casey, the yellow lab? Let's build a fence. You could just walk around the yard all day. You know, are you losing a little weight, Kipper? Okay, so then let's change out your diet. I mean, we they were so covered. And then Suki just decided she never wanted to take a walk. So then my husband used to wake up. Now, again, we're all working from home. So, you know, the dogs wake us. And of course we were, okay, fine. We're up. We're here. We don't have anywhere to go. So Jan would get up. My husband's name is Jan. Jan would get up at 5.45 in the morning. He's in finance. So his day starts at seven hmm. when the market opens. So 5.45, we would get up, feed the cats, pick up Suki and walk her, meaning carry her to the park. And paint the picture for that. How big is Suki? 
Suki was 12 pounds, like, like a Shih Tzu Maltese mix. What do they call that? A Shih The worst. But she was very smart. But she had all the smarts of a Maltese and a Shih Tzu. But then she also was very stubborn like a Shih Tzu. She can't get her to do what you can't get her to do. And she was like, I don't want to leave. I don't want to walk anywhere. But we needed to walk her. She needed to do her business, so to speak. So Jan, God love him, would pick her up walk to the Stuyvesant Park, which is two blocks away from our house, walk around the entire park with her. And then she would walk out. Walking home, not a problem. It's not like she had joint issues. She would pull him home, but she just wouldn't go there. You know, but home, that's coming home to mama. So that became their daily activity every single day for a year, unless we were in Connecticut. And then it would just be, you know, she'd walk out the door and hang in the backyard and, you know, or walk around the block with Kipper because Kipper's a big chocolate lab. He, he needed to be out several times a day. So how long had you had these dogs since they were puppies? So Suki, I adopted when she was a puppy. She was five months old. And Kipper and Casey, my husband rescued and adopted when they were each a year and a year and a half. Casey was a yellow lab, purebred, very smart, but you couldn't teach her what she didn't want to learn. And after a year of her living with one of Jan's very close friends, they said, this dog is too much for us. We don't know what we're going to do. And Jan said, I'll take her. And that was it. Then Casey came to live with Jan and the kids. And then a year and a half later, there was Kipper, who literally was big chocolate lab, coonhound mix, was a junkyard dog. He lived in a junkyard. He would, you know, scare people away from the junkyard and someone found him and he was beat up. You know, he had all had permanent marks on his body. And, you know, Jan saw him and said, no, 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 you're coming with us. And then there was Kipper. How many years had you and Jan been married when? We're together eight years. Okay. So eight years. So like seven years when all of this started to go down during the pandemic. Yeah, seven years when it all started to go down in the pandemic. Jan and I met on Tinder. We were like the first Tinder wedding. So we literally met and were engaged within three months after both of us had been divorced for many years. I read about it in that, you know, esteemed uh, paper, the New York Times. I thought that was great. Yes. Well, so here's why it got picked up in the Times. It's not like either one of us is like, you know, in society. It's because apparently we were the first people willing to go on record that we met online. And I was like, how is that possible? We met in 2013 when Tinder started, or 2014, whenever Tinder started. That's when we met. But apparently people were embarrassed to say that they met online. I was like, oh, my God, I am loud and proud. I want everybody to find love. So, And they called us and said, are you willing to say it out loud? I was like, yes. You're sure? I'm like, doesn't everybody? They're like, no, we've never had anybody say that they met on Match or that they met on J-Date. Nothing. I said, we will go on record. We are happy to. We have no problem with it. That's wonderful. My wife and I met on eHarmony. So there you go. You see, I mean, and how are you going to meet otherwise? You know, and Jan and I were perfect strangers, perfect strangers, nobody in common. I would have <laughs> never met him. And you had your wedding dinner at one of my favorite restaurants, ABC Kitchen. We had our wedding at ABC Kitchen. <laughs> yeah, the only wedding that they've ever done. And they have never done another since then. <laughs> and I wasn't a bridezilla, by the way. I mean, I produce events for a living. So I know what I'm doing. I don't think that they were prepared for what it was going to take. So uh, since then, they haven't had one. But it was magical. It was beautiful. Yeah. So what was it like melding? You know, so you had no children. He had four children. And Correct. I had two dogs. He had two dogs. Okay. So talk. I mean, this is a little bit, a little bit Brady Bunch. 
if you will. Oh, very. Well, first of all, I come from a blended family. I'm the youngest of five kids. My father had two daughters and my mother had two sons. Brady Bunch was like, that, uh-huh, that doesn't everybody happen that way? It did <laughs> not seem like a big deal to me. And so when I met Jan, I said to him, I remember on an early phone call, I said, so you have two kids? And then he said, no, I have four. And I was like, okay, well, we all have family. And he was blown away. He's like, wait a minute. Are you sure? And I said, yeah, what do you mean? Because it was normal to me to have a blended family. I'm one of five. So four? Puh, that's not even a team. <laughs> and you had a rough <laughs> childhood, as I understand. I did. I mean, my father passed away when I was quite young. And my mother moved while I was still in high school. So I was living on my own. And yeah, it was, you know, it was one of those things where you just figure out how to survive. And, you know, especially in 2020 with COVID, I was really prepared for it only because of my upbringing, because surviving is thriving as far as I'm concerned. And when you get the wool pulled out from under you, you have only two choices. You either have to crumble or you have to rise. And I didn't, there was nobody to lean on. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to find an apartment now and get a job and then go to college and pay for it all. More. I mean, it wasn't easy. But there was no other choice. You know, my dad was dead. My mother was gone, married to her third, then fourth and fifth husband eventually. So, yeah, like there was no <laughs> there was no afterthought about what I was doing. And how old were you when she left? 17. I was 17 years old. And where were you living? I was living in Long Island and I graduated from high school and I put all my stuff in storage from my mother's house because she had sold it. And then I went to work as a camp counselor up in um, upstate New York. And then on weekends, I would come home and I would look for affordable apartments with like whatever friends I found to live with me. And I found an apartment in Mineola, Long Island. It was like a you know, two family house. And we took the upstairs and the people who own the house lived downstairs. And that's where I lived for a year. And then eventually I had an older sister who lives in the city. So she allowed me to come live with her after that year for a few months until I found uh, a friend's father owned like a very rundown building. And I just was like, I don't care. I'll live anywhere. So I lived above a deli, which meant like I was roach infested, but I was like, but it's my, and it was huge. By the way, it was like a bowling alley in this apartment. <laughs> it was so big. But you just had to deal with the one thing. You had a lot of pets, a lot of small pets. Oh, my God. It was, I mean, by the way, and not even, like, you turn the lights on. Like, they were just, like, sitting next to me watching TV. Like, how are you doing? <laughs> I, just got, I just got, you know, you do, but you, again, you just survive it. What else do you do? What was I going to do? Be homeless? I mean, I guess I could have counted on the kindness of strangers, but there weren't any. So you just do what you got to do. So how did that grit shape your early career? Well, I started working as, um, I was working in sitcoms and then I transferred over into daytime television when everything was about daytime television. And I kind of eased my way into talent booking. So it just felt very comfortable for me to figure out, you know, how to produce celebrities on talk shows, what they wanted to talk about. I understood the visuals. I mean, I was a latchkey kid growing up. So all I knew was television. I learned how to read by reading Norman Lear, the credits at the back of the Norman Lear shows, like All in the Family and Maude and all. I know every producer there is out there. I met Norman Lear in my life and I told him the story. My first words, hands of God, were here's Johnny wow. because my parents had my bassinet in their bedroom. So the first six months of my life, every single night, I heard Ed McMahon say, here's Johnny. 
So that was the first thing I ever said. So television was like ingrained in me. So yeah, so I just, you know, you just kind of, I don't want to say fake it till you make it. I'm a quick study. I had already done my 10,000 hours with television. I knew every character actor. I knew their names. I knew who they were, what they had been in. There was no IMDb back then. Like it was literally in my head and I just had a sense of it. So I was able to do TV producing for a long time. I understood that. And then I transferred over and I started to focus solely on celebrity. And that's when I worked at Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And I was there for many years. And then there was like a shift in the, you know, the climate of the media where now it wasn't just about like an opening of a movie or this or that. If you didn't have a celebrity attached to it, no one cared. And I saw this white space, this niche in the industry. And I thought, I wonder if I could help corporate America with their brands, try to get them pushed out with talent. And I had a lot of friends who were publicists who were corporate publicists. So I did it. And I started offering the service or they would call me, we've got this Levi's Dockers film festival. I'm like, is that a thing? They're like, we need a celebrity to come or nobody will come cover it. You know, Phillips light bulbs. They needed somebody to go on the Today Show to talk about the ball drop. Nobody wants to talk about the light bulb in Times Square. But if a celebrity's there, then all of a sudden the Today Show will book it. And so I asked Conan and my boss, Jeff Ross, who's the executive producer, still is at the time. And I said, do you mind if I do this? And they said, we don't care. Book the show. And I was like, okay, so if I book the show, I can do this other thing? They were like, yes. And I couldn't believe it, but they were really cool. I mean, I remember the music booker, Jim Pitt, had booked um, like a Scorsese film with um, the Rolling Stones. I was like, oh, this is the thing. Everybody gets to do this stuff. And they were really kind to me. And for two years, I would get up at seven o'clock in the morning. I'd go to the office. I'd open it. From seven to 11, I'd do my thing. Then from 11 till seven, I'd work on Conan. Then from 7 to 11, I'd work my thing. Then I'd go home again. Needless to say, I'm not married to that husband anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a that's a long work no, day. It was, but at, by the way, at the time, the reason why I even started it is because I really wanted to make my own money. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to have to rely on another person's income. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, well, this is a good way to do it. And that was it. And it was rough for two years. It was really, really hard. Um, and like I said, it broke the marriage, but it built the business. And... Um, yeah, I'm not sorry about either, by the way. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're very happy with Jan today and this blended family that you've created. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love so it. So when you first met... I won the lottery. When you first met his dogs, what was that like? So I met the dogs and the kids simultaneously, and they were great. Casey is a yellow lab, so she came to me immediately with a shoe in her mouth. And I didn't 100% understand because I hadn't had labs. I'd had big dogs, but, you know, I'd had border collies and I had Hungarian vishlas and, but I didn't have a lab and I didn't get that that was like an offering. So I thought, oh, is that very cute? And then I remember I came to pick up the kids once and, you know, it's like a wood door with just a little window on the top, like around like five feet is that window that looks into the house or the person could look out. Mm -hmm. So I walked up the door and knocked on it and I see Kipper. And he keeps jumping up because he's six feet on his hind legs. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, what is <laughs> Very that? Very large dog. And I was like, okay, there's Kipper. And so that was Kipper. And, you know, he was just wonderful. And Kipper was like my little soulmate. Every time, you know, I saw him, he would kind of put his forehead to my forehead, you know, and he was like that. And I would just massage his ears. And he just, he knew like, oh, that's my mama. This is my mama. And, you know, everyone loves Casey. Casey was like everyone's heart. But, you know, I had a female dog of my own 
that was already eight or nine years old. So, you know, it was hard for me to kind of go like, oh, Casey's my heart and then Suki. And then I also had Baxter. I had this geriatric dog. I, I adopted a 12 year old dog with a heart condition because, you know, yeah. And so we had him for a couple of years, but introducing them, all four of them to each other was insanity because it's two very small dogs. Baxter was eight or nine pounds at his best, pure Maltese. We adopted him at nine years old. Suki, 12 pounds because she was like a football. And then we had Casey, who was about 85 pounds, and Kipper, who was 100 pounds. So these are giant dogs. They all got along really well, but there was a very specific dynamic. Baxter hated Casey. He's like, no, 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 you are not the girl. Suki is my wife. Now, Suki hated Baxter. Suki was like, I hate him. I don't want another dog in the house. And then Kipper just kind of was like, am I supposed to eat them? Because Kipper was a hunting dog. He had hunted rabbits in his life. And then he sees these little dogs and he's like, wait, and they were, you know, my dogs were, the little ones were very sweet with people, but were not to be messed with by other dogs, no matter the size. They did not want, they don't want to make friends with you. They don't care about you. And by the way, get away from me. So they just kind of all coexisted very well. They never fought. They definitely was some growling and barking. And if Casey ever went near Suki, Baxter would come and stand in front of her and be like, get away from my wife. And Suki would be like, I'm not your wife, please. No, you are in my life, but you are not my husband. Did you get the sense that the dogs were modeling the behavior that, that you and Jan had put out? Or were they just very independent doing their own thing? Oh, no. Suki was a princess from the minute I got her. I thought that she was stupid. I couldn't train her for the life of me. I went to this woman, Katrina, and I said, she's a lemon. She's a lemon. She can't learn anything. <laughs> I said, I'm going to go to the Sundance Film Festival for 10 days. Would you board her and train her? And she said, absolutely. I can train her. And uh, the next day she texted me and she said, just so you know, she already understands hand commands. And I was like, oh, I'm the dummy. I couldn't train her. She came back, understood hand command. She taught her not to bark at the door. Like she was really good, but you couldn't get Suki to do what she didn't want to do. So if we were coming outside and she was at the top of the steps of the brownstone, I'd be like, Suki, come on. And she'd be like, meh. I'm like, Suki, what do you need? An invitation, princess? Meh. So when she was four, that's when we got Baxter. And at that point, she listened to everything everybody said. She was so obedient because now suddenly there was someone vying for attention. Mm -hmm. So that dynamic was happening. When Baxter died, Suki became the same dog as she was when she was four years old. She's like, he, he's gone? Great. I'll sleep on both sides of the bed now. Um, as far as the big dogs were concerned, they're so friendly and they loved everybody. I mean, you know, they weren't exactly watchdogs. They had big barks, but they had no bite. Okay, so... Fast forward to the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You're in Manhattan at this point or you're in Connecticut? We have both places. The pandemic happens, all the kids come home. So now, you know, they're all home from school, either college, high school, whatever it is. They're all in the house and available. And Jan and I are in Manhattan for the day. And then Cuomo locks up New York City. Mm -hmm. So now the dogs and the kids, by the way, the kids kids, they're 18 to 24 years old. Like they're not children, they're not babies. The kids are alone in the house. It's like, yeah, you know, like it's a frat house now or a sorority <laughs> house for four of them. They're loving life. And we are in Manhattan. So we've got Suki and they've got, by the way, we have some cats as well. So we have Suki and the cats and they have Casey and Kipper. And the boys were the ones that said, we think that the dogs may need a ramp. 
And we were like, okay. And so for six weeks, we can't go to Connecticut because, you know, we're locked up and, you know, we're communicating with the kids and they're ever, you know, everything's going well. But that's when they started to notice like the dogs were slowing down in a way that was not that they were ever ignored. The dogs were always taken care of. But now you had four sets of eyes on them 24 seven. And, you know, if you've got multiples, as far as children are concerned, they all have an opinion and they all have a heart for the dog. So we're like, okay, we had a lot of collective family discussions, which we just do anyway. What was the format for those discussions? Was that like FaceTime? Okay. So you had like FaceTime meetings where all the kids and, yes. and you and Jan were talking about. To this day, we still do it because two of the kids, you know, one of the kids was in Arizona, drove to Arizona to work on a goat farm. The other one's at college living in his own apartment. So even when we were, the demise of the dogs happened, we just jump on FaceTime with each other. And we just make family decisions, you know, because they're adults. We have to include them. Then the dogs have been in their lives since before they were born. One of them. We're going to take a break here. We will be right back. And now a message from your dog. Oh, every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. Oh, I want to run. I want to sniff. Ooh, I want to find a good stick to carry. Oh, I want to roll in the grass. Oh, and warm my belly in the sun. Oh, I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want ever pup. The green, grassy beef liver smell wakes my senses. Oh, you may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. <laughs> it infuses any food you give me with healthy life vibrancy. Oh, <laughs> I can feel it. Ever pop traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpop you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpop, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpop is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. And we're back. So let's talk about some of these things that you did. A ramp sounds like a trivial thing, but evidently it wasn't. Let me tell you something. A ramp was not, it was no small affair when you are in the middle of a pandemic and you can't get wood. So the kids were able to get one giant plank, like a panel, like a wall panel almost. And then they kind of rigged it. They jerry rigged it with some, we have these really big, um, they're not cobblestones, but they're almost, they look like cobblestones. We have a bunch of them in our backyard because we have a path and there was just leftover. So they had them in the shed. So they just kind of jerry rigged it so that the dogs could at least go down the ramp. After a couple of weeks, when wood became available, I spoke to our contractors, a close friend of mine, and I said, Javier, can you please build a ramp with treads 
So then he built a proper ramp because we have steps that lead out from the kitchen to the backyard. So I'm like, we need a permanent ramp, something that's not going to warp, something that will be sealed, that is snow, everything. We can just make it easy. They won't slide off it. They won't, you know, and he did a perfect job. He weatherproofed it. And then we went and got tread so that their pads would not slide them down the ramp, so to speak. How many steps? It's only two steps down, but it's a house. It's two steps for people. The dogs couldn't do it. So the ramp ended up being, it's probably six feet long Mm. from the top to the bottom because we didn't want it to be too steep an angle. You know, the dogs were also, they're huge. And now they have arthritis. They're a little geriatric. You know, they're like, Kipper had been in a major car accident when he was two years old and he totaled an SUV. He survived it. The car did not. What? Jan was coming back from, I think, walking Kipper. He used to run with him. Jan is a marathon runner. He was running with him down to the beach and back. He was training for the New York City Marathon. Came back. Kipper ran off his leash unexpectedly. He just yanked it out of Jan's hand and ran into the middle of the street, probably chasing a squirrel. Gets hit by an SUV. Jan picks him up, takes him over to this place, uh, VCA Hospital in Norwalk, said, do everything you can to save my dog. They did, including put pins in his legs. The SUV was completely totaled. There was no coming back from the car. The dog survived it. I mean, the dog had like nine lives. Like no matter whatever happened to Kipper, he survived it. He, I believe he was so in love with those kids. You know, no one more than my oldest stepson, Jansen, they were spirit animals with each other. If everyone could walk in the house and Kipper was happy, Jansen walked in the house. Kipper was like, oh, oh, it's it's Jansen. It's like Santa Claus showed up. So he had such a will to live. But, you know, Casey too, they just love the children so much. And the kids love them. Every time they come home from when they were little to teenagers to adults, even now, the minute they came home, someone's on the floor, on the floor laying with the dogs. Every time, every child. They're just great. So talk to me about that will to live. Do you think that played a a role in why you saw this very quick succession of their passing? Okay. So when we lost Baxter, it was five years ago on my birthday, oddly enough. And then Suki died on Mother's Day of 2020. And we were very confused about what was happening because we had just rushed Kipper to the hospital the same day because he needed to have his spleen removed. So we were praying it wasn't cancer. They said we can have emergency surgery, which was quite expensive. And we were like, just do it. Just save Kipper at all costs. You know, the kids were not ready and he wasn't in pain. I mean, if we've got a spleen out, he could survive it as long as he didn't have cancer and he had still had great quality of life. So of course we saved him. He had to have his spleen removed, but it was not cancerous. Thank God. So that happened and it really, he was great uh, for a long time. Suki, on the other hand, out of nowhere developed, I mean, she was fine on Monday, fine on Tuesday. She stopped eating on Wednesday and now she's drinking, but she's not eating. Thursday morning, we take her to the animal hospital to drop her off and say, we don't understand why she's not eating. Can you let us know? And then we come back. Kipper now needs to be rushed to the hospital. Something's wrong. So we take him in. We leave him. Then they say to us, do you want to have emergency surgery? Absolutely. Have it. Save him. Let us know if it's cancer. And then we are waiting with, on pins and needles. And then we get the call from the other animal hospital. You need to come here right now. Suki's not going to make it. And I was like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? 
we just dropped her off. She's just not eating. And they said, she's not, not eating. She is kidney failure. You cannot save her. So we were just expecting, okay, let's just drop her off and then tend to kip her. And then now she's never coming home. So now we're walking the walk back to the animal hospital going like, okay, hold on. We got to go get her. She had this like a plush toy donut. She loved her donut. You know, Suki didn't like to chase the donut and bring it back. She liked to, you to throw the donut then she gets the donut and then she chews on the donut and goes ee, 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 endlessly until you can get the donut from her because you're going bonkers. And then she just stands there and she's like, throw it again. I want to do it. And then, ee, ee, ee. so I bring her the donut and you know, her favorite blanket and then something of mine that smells like me. And we go in, you know, it's COVID now. So we have to put on all the PPE and we have to, you know, get temperature checked and they weren't really letting people into the animal hospital. So we had to wait until they could bring Suki into a private room. Now we had already said goodbye to Baxter there. So I had it in my head, what happens when they go. And I remembered that I made a mistake with Baxter because they put him in a room and I let them turn on the overhead light. And it really stuck with me that that fluorescent lighting should not have been the last thing he saw. It should have been dusky in there. It should have been softer for him. We should have played music for him. Like there could have been other things we did. So with Suki, I said, I need a room that has a dimmer or I need a light bulb or something. They said, no, 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 we have a room with a dimmer. And you walk in and the room is like, it is the room that they say goodbye to everybody in. There's tissues and dim lighting and, you know, the, the blankets. So we had Suki and I held her in my arms and I played her Warren Zevon's Keep Me In Your Heart for a while. And that, if you haven't heard this song, I mean, if you download it, it'll break you but it is so beautiful. And he wrote it for his family when he was actually dying of cancer. And it just, it always makes me think like, you know, it's just a beautiful song in general. He was such an incredible artist, but it really put us in the right mindset where we were no longer thinking of ourselves and we were thinking of her. And, you know, for me, Suki was my responsibility for the minute I got her. And I got her on a whim, by the way. I was buying cheese and bagels next door to where she was. And I walked in and I said, uh, maybe. And the woman said, well, go buy your cheese and bagels. Come back. I'll pack her up. And I was like, what happened? Huh? You know, they do that. It's an impulse buy. It was hundred percent. I was having 17 people over the next day for brunch. It was the <laughs> eve of new year's Eve. I used to do this brunch every January 30th, 17 people walk in. They're like, you got a dog. I was like, I know. And when I got her home, I thought, Oh, that's 20 years of keeping this thing alive. I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't had my own dog. I never had my own dog. I only had family dogs from when I was a kid. So I remember actually I called the woman who I got Suki from and I said, she won't stop following me around. What's the matter with her? And they said, no, that's normal. So anyway, I figured her out, got her trained. She was perfect. And I thought to myself, okay, well, we've got to give her the kind of exit that she requires, you know? And I looked into her eyes and I said I wouldn't leave her. And we played her the song and we dimmed the lights and, you know, we said all the things and, you know, she was struggling for air and she was struggling in general. So, you know, but I promised her I would keep looking in her eyes. I will be the last thing you see because you know that mama is what always kept you safe. And I could see her, you know, like, but even before they gave her the sedative, I could see her kind of going like, okay, mama's here. And it killed me. It just killed me. I mean, she died in my arms, but that was what I had to give her. And it was rough. 
it was rough. Had I known that it was coming again, nothing would have changed. But it prepared me for when Casey went and then for when Kipper went. So when you saw that transition, when you were holding her in your arms Mm -hmm. and the sedative was taking its effect and you were looking at her Mm -hmm. and she was looking back. Yeah. What do you think was going on in her mind? You know, obviously she didn't know what was happening, but she knew that she was starting to feel better because the sedative was obviously making it. She wasn't in pain anymore, you know, and she wasn't struggling and, you know, but mama was there. All she needed was mama. Now, Suki in general was not a lap dog. She was a sit next to you dog. But she liked to be held where she was kind of like sitting up like a person. Like she would sit with her hind legs like on my legs. And then she would sit like she was sitting in a chair. And she loved that. And then I would do that and I would rub her belly. So that's what we did. You know, I held her and I rubbed her belly. And, you know, that. And she used to put both her paws. She would have them down. And then if you started rubbing her belly, her paws would slowly (laughs) go up. Like, you know, like you were getting ready to rob her. My youngest stepdaughter would um, hold Suki. And when she would rub her belly, she would kind of go, hi, hi, hi. You know, she was just very sweet. And I, I tried to just do everything I knew that she would like. So I knew that once we got there, she was no longer afraid. She saw me. You know, there's no tail wagging when they're in that much pain. But I could see that she was looking at me. And, you know, so I just thought, lock eyes with her. Don't look away. You know, this is not about your comfort. It's about her comfort. And it's hard. It's hard. And I am not the kind of person, I cannot watch videos of anybody getting hurt on TV. I'm extremely empathetic. I am, I can feel other people's emotion who are just standing in the room. I pull from that. It wears me out if I'm around too many people at one time. You know, like I'm the kind of person like, great, I'll go to a party. And at some point I do not fade. I turn off. I'm like, it's too much. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. So in this case, I had to not go. You know, I can't watch videos of anyone getting hurt or any of the horrible police videos that are going on right now. It is too much. Way, way, way too much. That is not my privilege. I should not be witness to your demise. But Suki, you are mine. I am privileged to see you and help you transition to the other side. And so that, I don't know how, but I mustered whatever it is that I needed to muster to to do it. Like I said, it wasn't about me. And I have to tell you, everyone thinks it's going to be haunting. You'll have bad dreams. You won't. You won't because you are of service to someone else. You are not of service to yourself. And you will discover that once you do that, you're like, oh, okay. So I did that. And I'm not saying that you won't cry and be devastated. You will. But I don't have dreams where Suki is, you know, dying over and over and over again. And that prepared you for the next one. Seemingly. We had already said goodbye to Baxter a few years before. Suki, I didn't think that I could survive in this world without Suki. Suki traveled the world with me. She was with me on every trip. She had more frequent flyer miles, I think, than many people I know. She came everywhere with me. LA, San Francisco, Texas, London. She had been to islands. She had been everywhere. And I didn't understand what my life would be like without her. But then I got married and I have four stepchildren and more pets. And then I got into cat rescue. And now suddenly I was like, oh, nothing changed for my feeling with Suki. But I did start to understand as she got older, like, oh, I see that life will go on. It won't be the same, but I do see how life will go on. And, and I was happy in her later years that I didn't feel tortured by the thought that she was going to go. I thought like, okay, I have to come to terms with it. She's, you know, almost 14 years old. 
but I thought I had 20 years because, you know, crossbreeds and little dogs, you think you got 20 years. And I've seen my friends have 20 years. So I was like, really? 13? This is happening? You know? So I felt gypped, but you know. But honestly, if you get 10 years, any year past 10 is a bonus year as far as I'm concerned. What did you do for the other dogs that passed? So Casey, the yellow lab, she was getting older and it was showing, right? Her face was turning white. She was blind in one eye. She went deaf, but it wasn't until she got dementia that we realized that things got really bad for her. So in this last year, we realized that Casey, she could feel the vibrations in the house and she obviously could tell when we touched her and she had a tiny bit of vision out of one eye, but she couldn't hear anything. So it wouldn't matter if you were like, Casey, come here, it's okay, mama's here. None of that mattered. She needed to be touched. So if, if we were sitting on the couch, Casey, either we'd bring her up on the couch and she needed help because, you know, she had arthritis and bad joints and all of that. But if not, someone would have to have like either a hand or a foot on her. So she knew someone was around. We ended up putting beds in all of like high traffic areas of the house mm -hmm. so that she could feel people walking by. And if she could feel it, and then she could come and find where you were. So sometimes she would lay down in my stepdaughter's room and she'd be on this carpet and then she would start crying. Why? Where are? Where is that? Because she couldn't feel anything because she wasn't on a bed on the floor. So then we would go and find her, and we would move her into the living room. And this, the moving of Casey became just a. It just we all just were like, oh, Casey's crying. Someone move her. Does she want to eat? Does she need to go out? Oh no, it's just couch. Okay. And then it wasn't until, I mean, this just happened uh, about five weeks ago. But it wasn't until my husband was in the house with Casey. He picked her up and put her on the couch and then she wanted to lay on him. And then when she was laying on him, she would not stop crying. So Casey's entire life became, if she was awake, she was crying. And if she was sleeping, it was because she was exhausted from crying. Hmm. Other than going out and going peepees and eating, and then eating became a problem for Casey. We're talking about a lab here. Labs will eat like a hubcap. But when <laughs> she stopped eating her kibble, I was like, oh, we've got a problem here. You know, we kept taking her for wellness checks. We kept taking her to, you know, the, the vet. We kept changing different things. And then when Jan was holding her and she would not stop crying for any reason, they said, listen, her dementia is so bad. She doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know who anyone is. She can't see. She can't hear. And she can't walk anymore. We had to carry her outside to do her business. And if she did her business, she would fall in it. Mm. And that point... There's no more quality of life. Keeping her alive was torture because she really was sad. I mean, imagine your entire waking life. All you did was cry and scream. And then the only time you were still was when you were sleeping. So we had heard about a place called Final Journey. Some of the animal hospitals, you can't bring them and you can't say goodbye. So Final Journey comes to your house. Because of COVID. Because of the pandemic. Right. So Final Journey came to the house and we were all laying down in um, our bedroom. I had laid out a sheet for her. We covered her in rose petals. And then we put her favorite bone uh, near her. She couldn't eat it, but she could smell her bone, you know, with the one with the marrow inside. She never really chomped on it, but she just could kind of lick at it. So we put that in with her. And then we all, for hours, just laid with her and said goodbye. 
And then, you know, they, you know, that started at nine in the morning. And then the people from Final Journey who were so respectful came at 2 p.m. And then they came and, you know, we played Warren Zevon and then we lowered the lights. And it wasn't until they gave her the sedative that we saw Casey finally relax for the first time. Her muscles in her, you know, her upper body relaxed a little. And we said, oh, okay, she's not in pain anymore. And then we did the same thing we always did. We all held a paw. I looked into her eyes. We said goodbye. And then we covered her with the sheet. They had brought in a stretcher. My husband's 6'3", my stepson's 6'6". So they were carrying her out. But we were able to cover her like Cleopatra in her shroud. And we said, just take everything, including her bone, the petals with her. And then, you know, we had her cremated and they... They sent us um, her ashes, you know, a few days later. And then we were like, okay, Kipper, he has all our attention. And he was great for four days. And the next thing we knew, Kipper wasn't walking. And he had lost like 12 pounds. And we were like, what is going on? We had just brought him in for a wellness check. What? No, we had changed his diet. We were giving him special meals mixed with, you know, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, the private meals, the whole thing. I used to take the meals out and mix them with all the things. And we would put them in Ziploc bags marked Kipper morning, Kipper lunch, Kipper PM. And then we had the special bags and we would do this every week. And, you know, no one had to guess what meds, everything was in the bag. Very easy to remember. And then whoever was in the house would be like, oh, okay. It's two o'clock, time for Kipper to eat, you know, 5.30, time for Kipper. And then you just have to go find the bag. So we were very dedicated. And then we were heading out. It was Jewish holidays and I'm Jewish. So some friends of ours had invited us, the two people in our pod. We were going over for a a Seder, you know, now that we're vaccinated, we were like, okay, we can go and sit and eat in someone's house. It's only vaccination, only Seder. There were four people. It was supposed to be four people. We didn't show up. So obviously nothing happened. And then we got a call when we were out the door, Kipper can't breathe. We said, what do you, huh? So we had brought him in because he was having a little stumble. And they said, Kipper can't breathe. You need to come here. And I'm like, oh, come on, it was, come on. It was eight days now at this point. So I, we turn around, we pick up Carolyn, my oldest stepdaughter. And then we call Jansen and his girlfriend and we tell them what's going on. We call Jane in Arizona and Stedman at school, tell them what's going on. Everybody get on FaceTime. And we drove to the animal hospital. And thankfully there, they had a private room you could come in and out of from the exterior of the building. And um, we were all allowed to go in two by two. So the kids that weren't there, you know, Jansen and Carolyn went in and then they FaceTimed their brother and sister. And then Karen came and Jansen and his girlfriend came and said goodbye. And then my husband and I went in as the last two and then need to FaceTime Stedman again because he wasn't done. And then, you know, I do what I always do. Can we shut these lights off? I need a lamp. I don't care if it's a reading lamp. Just face it towards the wall so that it's a softer light. They did it. They were amazing. Played the song. I mean, here we are, you know, keep me in your heart for a while. There we go playing the song. And then... Jan said goodbye, and then I went in front, and Kipper and I were forehead to forehead like we always were. And I said, okay, buddy, you know, mama's boy, look into your eyes, and you just stay with mama, mama's boy. And then, you know, we all said goodbye. I mean, 
I'd never seen a doctor, a veterinarian cry during these procedures. Never. I mean, we've had four dogs and God, she was bawling, you know, maybe it's the song. Maybe it was Kipper because he was so special, but she was broken. And I thought to myself, oh my God, you know, that surprised me more than anything, but she had to rip us away from him. She had to say in through her tears, she said, Lori, he's gone. He's gone. And I just, I didn't want to leave him. I just didn't want to leave him, you know? And we didn't, you know, even though Casey, I mean, Casey and Kipper were very in tune with each other. You know, Kipper used to groom her. He would clean her ears. And, you know, but then Casey, when they were younger, would bark, one bark, loud bark. And it wasn't for her. She was letting us know Kipper has to go out. And so we would be like, oh, I mean, Casey would be like, wolf. And we're like, what's going on? Who? What? Oh, Kipper? And that was it. She knew. I'm sure she could smell. He was ready to go poopers. And I'm like, okay. She was so smart, even though she wasn't the most obediently trained, but she was so smart. And she would tell us everything, you know? So, yeah. That's hopefully all the loss for- Oh, yeah. For sure. Cats, they live forever. And we have one crazy cat. Oh, yeah. We have one cat that's loco, super bananas. She's going to live forever. She's going to torture us for the rest of her life. She's 11. She scratched my husband so badly yesterday. And I was like, what happened? He's like, ah, she warned me. Because she goes, and then he was like, what is it? And she's like, I'm like, no, she's going to live forever, this one. Because crazy lives forever. It's the sweet ones that go. How did you become a different person or did you become a different person as a result of the succession of loss? I mean, I'll tell you that I can't see any stories about animals that aren't rescues. So like I follow the Dodo on Instagram because they're all happy ending stories. You know, that is good. You know, now I'm talking to my husband. I'm like, should we get ducks? Cause we're not getting dogs. Not for a while. We've got all the cats. And by the way, We had cats and we had to train these big Labradors not to kill the cats. So for six weeks when we got the kittens, we had the dogs on leashes in the house. And eventually they were like, oh, they're not squirrels. Okay, we shouldn't kill them. And then they learned slowly. We transitioned them. Great. Everybody lives in harmony until the cats decided they wanted to stalk the dogs. And then, you know, obviously nothing happens. They just kind of run up on them, scare them and run away. But, um... Yeah, I just think that, you know, there's been so much loss in 2020 in general and so many things happened that it just, it put me in a place where I was like, okay, so I don't think I can do that for a while. If something happened to one of the cats, it would be hard, but I, that needs to be it now, universe, like you did it. And like, we also didn't expect Kipper to go because we didn't think Kipper really cared that much about Casey. Like, yes, he would kiss her every once in a while, lick her ears here and there. But it wasn't like, I mean, she would run around like a lunatic and he'd be like, oh, I can't. So we were like, hey, it's going to be great. He's going to be like, great. Now everyone will pay attention to me. And apparently their relationship was much more symbiotic than that. And, and he seemed fine when we got home. Like for those eight days, he was like, good. But you know how dogs are. They're fine until they aren't. <laughs> and then the minute they're not, it's often and unfortunately too late. We got very lucky we were fortunate enough that we've been able to save the dogs and one of our cats multiple times, you know, that we have the wherewithal to do it. And I mean, even the kids were like, we'll do odd jobs around the neighborhood. And they did all kinds of things. And I said, please don't put up a GoFundMe. Like it's people don't have meals right now. We cannot put up a GoFundMe in the middle of COVID to ask for people to help us pay for this. We will handle it. 
And the kids were like, okay, well, we want to help. And the next thing I know, all four of them were out there figuring out odd jobs, mowing people's lawns, babysitting, doing anything they could. And they earned, I mean, a significant amount of money, a few thousand dollars. And they handed it over and they said, please, we want to pay for it. We want to help. They just, it was so their wish. I mean, they're kids. We don't want to take their money. But they had gone out specifically only to do it just to say, you know, here, we're bringing it to the animal hospital to help. It was so, so sweet. So it sounds in some ways that this horrific experience was a blessing for your family. I mean, I wouldn't call it a blessing. Here's the good part about it. And there is only one good thing. Everyone had a voice in the family. Everyone had their voice heard, regardless of how old they were, just because they're the kids and we're the parents. Uh 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 uh. You have to tell us when it's okay. When Kipper was in the hospital with a spleen, they said, Look, it's a 50 50 chance he has cancer. You may not want to do this. And it's going to be a lot of money. Hmm. And they said, We're not ready. We're not ready to let him go. And I said, Okay, that's it. We've heard from everyone. We've all voted. We're not ready. We save him. When Casey was not well and was really bad and not consolable, we would all get on FaceTime and we said, this is what she's like now. And they said, okay, we get it. We understand. It's time to say goodbye. And then we all had plans to come and say goodbye in person. And then when Kipper went, there was no conversation. He couldn't breathe. There was no saving him. He no longer had the ability to keep himself alive. And you know, it's not like they put you on like an iron lung. I don't know what they do now for people who can't breathe. I guess you know, we're not putting the dog on a Respirator. ventilator for life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, again, the children are now 18 and older. So we are not telling them things. We're advising them. They're adults. They tell us what they want to do. And then we give them our advice and we hope they make the right decisions. And thankfully, our four kids make amazingly smart decisions about everything. But I think I would have to ask them, I believe they would agree with me that they felt empowered, that they were able to have a say in what went on with the dogs. Because remember, I'm their stepmom. I hadn't had the dogs my whole life or their whole lives, but I had been around eight years. It's a good portion. They were my babies, but I couldn't be the one, you know, I couldn't be the one to make the final call. It had to come from the children and Jan, ultimately, with my advice. And my advice is always the same. We save the animal as long as their quality of life after will be wonderful. That is the only thing we care about is their quality of life. I mean, you guys seem like really close already. Did this bring you closer because you all had to focus on this in the midst of the pandemic? I think the pandemic brought us all closer because we were able to, I mean, look, the kids were adults and now living back in the house. That being said, they were already living out on their own. Now suddenly they're home. And I have something to say, and my husband has something to say about how you do this, and what about the garbage, and you didn't throw this out in the refrigerator. And it's like, we had to start realizing that we were roommates. You know, this is no longer parents and children. <laughs> this is parents and adults. So we had to say like, okay. And we had already had so many family meetings through the year to say like, all right, maybe we need to figure out how to better communicate with each other about things. And, you know, if we're in the city and we come back to the house and a glass is broken, it's not the end of the world, you know, and think like just things like that, or if the garbage was not put away the right way or what have you. So we had already figured that out, you know, by the time all of this stuff started going down with Casey and Kipper, but I'm very blessed. My stepchildren feel like my own children. They love respect and adore their father which is why 
they sign me off. Like I'm signed off. Okay, got it. She's my stepmom. I'm not. I'm not their dad's wife. I'm their stepmom. That's how I'm introduced. And I'm very lucky that as the older they get, the better our relationship is. And they're they're just great kids. I mean, you don't often have the opportunity to say to a kid, "No, you can't do that." One of the kids wants to take the roof off the jeep because we live in a beach town. My husband's like, "You're not doing that." They're like, "All right." I'm like, really? If it was me, I'd be screaming my head off. That's my car. And it's not. It wasn't my car. It was my parents' car, my mom's car, I guess, at the time. If I was a nightmare, well, obviously, I wasn't. I w- no one was watching the house while I was around. It was a little different. These kids feel taken care of. And when they do, and they feel like when you get enough and you get a lot of love and support, it's easy to kind of go like, okay, maybe that's irrational. Okay, I got it. Or maybe it's just like dad's decision. Okay, I'll have to accept it. You know, we get what we need. So I'm extremely blessed. It's, it's hard for me to live out there in the world of the evil stepmother because I'm not saying that, you know, we don't have disagreements where they probably thought that when they were younger. But uh, it really is the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. Listen, let's not forget, these kids have their own mom. And I'm not trying to be that, right. you know, and I've gotten sign off from her. So, you know, no one's competing. But they're adults now. There's not a lot of co-parenting going on, even between my husband and I. You know, they're adults. They say what they want to do. And we say what we think is right. And they generally make the right decision. But you have to remember something. They're a wolf pack. So even if we say something, if they say something to their siblings and they don't agree, they're like, that's no. And they're going to get pushed back from each other before they even bring it to us. So we're like, okay. So there's an occasional moment where they'll whisper in our ear, like, did you hear so-and-so? And we're like, oh, really? Oh, okay. We'll be on the lookout for that, you know. So they don't always agree with each other, and they pressure each other to do the right thing. It's pretty incredible. So here's a thought I had. You were talking about the hydration holidays. Are you by any chance a Kohen? Do you know? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, my last. I'm Lori Levine Van Arsdale. So my husband's not Jewish. He's Dutch. But my ex husband is a Levi. I think I might be a Kohen. But my family's from Russia. I mean, don't get mad about that, people. We're not like related to Putin or anything. But our last name is Padalny. Back then, you put the river and the town in front of your last name. So the last name was Dalny, but the Po River, so Padalny became our last name. When everybody came over from the old country to the Lower East Side, you know, when they came in through Ellis Island, they were like, what's Padalny? No, your name's Donnelly. (laughs) And they got them at minimum to switch the L and the N. So instead of Donnelly, it became Dalny. They were like, okay, and they put an E on it, and they made it very easy, at least for record-keeping. But then when we go back, you know, we'll find some other people in the universe. But my family, you know, they all came through what we call the bakery. There was a bakery on the upper, on the Lower East Side. Everybody worked at the bakery. When you came in from the old country, your job was to leave the bakery. So you take your job, you earn enough money to go get another job, because then somebody else has to come in and take your job at the bakery. And that went on for my whole family. came over from the old country, everybody, unless they dropped dead, they were here. And I had relatives that lived so old. I have a picture of a Seder from 1932, right? Yeah. Yes. 1932. My dad is like 16 years old or something like that. And he he had me into his fifties and I knew all the people in the picture and they all looked a thousand years old back then. But they weren't. They were young. But in 1932, there wasn't anything. You know, there was. They weren't dying their hair and getting Botox and things like that. So I was like, "Is that Nathan? 
Nathan was a thousand years old, but he lived <laughs> into his 90s. So I remember him vividly. So, but he probably was in his 20s in that photo. So I was like, if you look at it, he looks 100 in the photo, but I guess now it was, you know, that it was, that was a hard life back then. Of course they looked old. It was tough. They'd, they'd been through a lot. I yeah. was asking about the Cohen just because of the connection with death and the Cohen, And I don't know too much more about it, but I, I know that there's something there. Well, I'm kind of wondering where the genesis of your decision to look into your dog's eyes and to know that that was the right thing to do. Where did that come from? I don't know. Honestly, it's not my way. I mean, I have no problem getting into, like I have friends that I will get into your personal space or if they like are feeling like they're going through something. A friend of mine went through a divorce. I called her every day for months. She never called me back. I'd be like, hi, you know, you're not calling me back. Anyway, here's, I was thinking about this and I would just leave messages and text messages. And daily call. She lives in LA and I finally flew to LA and I was like, what's the matter with you? She said, I can't pick up the phone. I said, all right, well, you know what? You're getting divorced now. So at minimum, let's go to dye your hair. You look like you look horrible. Someone else is going to want to be with you in your lifetime. Like, come on. So I, I definitely am that person that can kind of see what someone else needs and whether or not you like it, I might just click into it and just do it anyway mm -hmm. and not feel like, I know you're not responding to me, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to call you every day. And I know you need to hear from me. So this is who I am. So I have a lot of friends that are those type of people, you know, and you don't see them for a while, then you do see them and time compresses and it's like, that's it. So I think that perhaps just me being that person, I think, you know, the fact that I am, I don't want to say empathic, but I have empathy for other people. I can feel someone else's emotions. Like I say to my husband, even though he'll say like, I'm fine. I'm like, look, you're vibing all over me. So what is going on? Because I'm not good at guessing what's happening necessarily. Like, I don't know what's bothering you. I only know that something is bothering you. So I have to take your word for it when you tell me what it is. And then sometimes people don't want to talk about it and you have to respect that. But I know when something's happening. So perhaps that's where it came from. And also I just thought about, are they scared? How would I feel? Would I be scared? And if I was scared, I think I'd want someone to hold my hand. And I think I'd want someone to look in my eyes and, and make me feel like it's okay. It's not scary. It's okay. It's going to be okay. You're going to feel better and it's going to be okay. And, and you're just going to feel like you're going sleepies. And that I hope, you know, I mean that on the other side, there is another side, the over the rainbow bridge. I hope, you know, they're on the other side. I hope that Suki never has to see Baxter again. I hope that Baxter can see Suki every day. <laughs> and then Casey and Kipper are now with Chester and with Winston and Baron and all of and Pierre and all the other dogs that have passed in our lives and that they're all, you know, frolicking and doing what they want and not feeling no pain. You know, Kipper's entire life would be, if he could chase and kill a rabbit every day, that would be heaven to him. So perhaps that's what he's doing. Casey, she just wants a shoe to pick up and she just wants to wag her tail and, and greet people. Maybe she's like the concierge at, at Heaven's Gate. Hi, are you here? Here's a shoe. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what, what people believe. It's I'm more spiritual than I am religious, but you know, again, I just... Well, have you felt their presence, heard from them, gotten dreams? You said you don't have bad dreams, but have you... Right. Have, you, have, have you... I had vivid dreams? Yeah, I've definitely had vivid dreams. My sister passed when I was young and my father passed when I was young. And I occasionally will have very vivid dreams. And I sometimes like to think like, oh, I, that was a visit. Mm -hmm. Like I dream in black and white, but when I dream in color, I'm like, oh, that's a visit. And sometimes they're welcome. 
you know, I remember once I had a vivid dream about my father. He died when I was 11. So I had a vivid dream about him. And I said, where have you been? And I remember walking with him down the street where we lived in that house. And he said, I was so sick. I just didn't want you to see me that way. Hmm. And I was like, okay. But to me, that felt like a visit. Because when I woke up, it I felt so real. And, you know, I don't know. I've heard people talk about meeting on the astral plane. And I'm like, well, I'll buy it. I'll take it. And then there are these things that suddenly happen in my life when I'm like, oh, that's Helene. That's my sister. Uh, that feels like a little divine intervention. So I try to, you know, nod and tip my hat to, you know, God or the universe or whomever to say like, okay, remember to be grateful. Remember that you, as sad as you are to lose, you know, these loved ones and these family members, it was your privilege to have them in your life. And they gave everything of themselves. Dogs give everything to you, everything. All they want to do is love you. That's all they want to do. They have no other purpose in life other than Kipper who wants to kill rabbits. Other than that, they only want to love you and be with you and lay with you. And it's like, you know, however long you get them, like I said, and any day over 10 years, because I've lost all of my dogs between 10 and 15 years. I have not had one dog live past 16. And I'm like, what's the breed? What's the breed that's going to live longer? And then I'm like, cats, that's the breed that lives longer. What's the story behind Keep Me in Your Heart Forever? Is that the song? Yeah. I mean, do you know, like, how did it come into your consciousness? Well, I was latchkey kid. You get addicted to television. I could not go to sleep ever when I was a kid without watching Letterman. Letterman was my no dose, or no, sorry, the other opposite, my NyQuil. And so uh, I put on Letterman, and he loved Warren Zevon. And when Warren was dying, he went on Letterman. I think he was on every day for a week. And he said, I'm dying. But I wrote the song for my family and I heard it and it broke me. It broke me in half and I never forgot it. And um, I played it when my sister passed and it always stuck with me and I keep it in my phone just in case. And it's just that thing. You know, sometimes songs are just with you for no rhyme or reason. Well, for rhyme and reason, so to speak. And that one, first of all, I couldn't believe that Warren Zevon was so strong that he was accepting uh, that he was going. And instead of feeling sorry for himself, he was like, no, I'm going to turn my pain into purpose. And I'm going to remind them to keep me in your heart for a while that I'm always here. When you see the sun shining and when you see, you know, you see the train and you see me down the road, that's me. And I, you just keep me in your heart for a while. And it, it helped me heal when Helene died it helped me heal when Suki died. I don't even think I play it for them. I play it for me because I need, um, I just need it to, for them to know that I love them and I'll keep them in my heart forever. But it's also a really beautiful song. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a beautiful song. And if you're sitting and you're saying goodbye to someone who won't be there, but you'll keep them in your heart forever. It, it, it is a tool for healing, but at the same time, it helps them as well. I mean, who doesn't want to hear some beautiful melody when you're feeling your worst, you know? Oh my goodness. I thought I was going to get through this whole thing without falling up. And there it is. Okay. I really tried. And it's okay to cry. It is okay <laughs> to cry. I think that is definitely one of the yeah. things that help us get through these really tough things. And you've been a an amazing, you know, thank you so much for sharing this with us. You're welcome. I hope it helps someone. I, I, I give any listener 
credit for getting this far in. Because if you've listened to this all the way through, God bless you. And I hope that it helps, but I hope you also never have to deal with this. Well, I don't think we talk enough about death. And I think in many ways, there's hushed tones. And I think there's a certain sense of shame that people can feel this emotional, this connected to a dog. Yeah. Well, that's what people don't understand. This gets me. When you have a dog and you explain to someone that your dog passed, they do not get it. They're like, it's a dog. And I'm like, well, get a dog and then you'll get it. You'll understand that that's your child, that you literally are breathing. It's like you birth them out. But then this other thing that happens that breaks me, breaks me and it angers me that when people have dogs that are sick, they drop them off at the shelter or they dump them. And I, you know, I, I follow these rescues. I donate to these rescues. There are places in every town where people dump their dogs and they're old and, you know, and it's, and the reason I took in Baxter is because he was 10 years old and no one wanted him. His owner died. And at the time, my next door neighbor said, I can't take in a dog. Will you? And I was like, well, okay, you take the dog. Well, okay. And I said, all right, I'll bring him in the house for the weekend. And if Suki doesn't kill him, I guess we could keep him. And that was it. I mean, this dog lived a very privileged life before he came to me. The only place in Manhattan I ever, ever took him. I remember we were on 57th and 5th and he dragged me, dragged me into Bergdorf Goodman. And I'm like, we're not going in here. And he pulled me all the way to one counter. And that well, woman goes, oh, Baxter, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I, have you seen this dog before? And they were like, yes, Dahlia used to cut Dahlia. That was his, his old mommy who died. Dahlia was this very rich lady who lived on Fifth Avenue, three blocks away from Bergdorf, went in every weekend, Baxter would go with her and then go to the counter and they had cookies for Baxter. So that's the only place in this whole city he knew. And we just happened to have been up there. So yeah. So the old, anyway, the, the thing that breaks me is when like you've got a dog for life, their life, not your life, their life, the whole thing from beginning to end, you can't dump your dogs. You can't give them to the shelter because you don't, you're too, you, you, you can't say goodbye. And if a loved one dies who loved the dog, figure out where you're going to place the dog. Don't just be like, I, we tried everything. We couldn't find anybody. And then they take them to be euthanized. Mm -hmm. That breaks me in half, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. We're going to take a break here, but when we come back a little change of pace, we will discuss the role of dogs and celebrity. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We are back. Let's talk a little bit about celebrities and dogs. Okay. Obviously, you built your career working with celebrities. They're not just work colleagues, but they're friends, some of them. Sure, some. Yeah. Some. Listen, I work in an industry just like yours. And here's with the deal. Some people you like, some people you don't. Some people are great. Some people are jerks. Doesn't matter if they're famous. I'm just letting you know. You just click with who you click with. So I'm not a professional celebrity friend because, yeah. you know, I don't like everybody. I like who I like, you know, and that's it. But I have worked with a lot of people who have dogs and I worked on a dog rescue book. It's called Rescue Paws, right? Rescue Tales. 
might have been called Rescue Tales. I forget at the moment. I'm looking at one of the pictures in the book. I'm in the book with Suki because I had gotten Suki while we were working on the book. All the proceeds went to charity. But we had pictures um, of a million celebrities and their dogs, uh, you know, on the beach and we're in their house everywhere. And, the, and this photographer was traveling all over the country to meet celebrities and their dogs. And I got to get connected to him. And he said, you know, do you want to help me? I don't have any money. And I said, no, I'll help you. If you're giving the money to charity, of course, I won't take any money. And for three years, I just would, if I met a celebrity that had a dog or I heard about one, I'd be like, hey, can you go to California for a couple of weeks? And the photographer would go to California for a few weeks. I would set up the shoots. I wouldn't even go. Every once in a while, they would be in New York. I'd be like, come to the Hamptons. Let's shoot everybody out there who's got their dog. And then when I got Suki, inside the three years, I happened to have gotten Suki. And he's like, well, you, you need to be in the book. And then everybody had to give a quote about their dogs for the book. And what I said about Suki is she's the kind of dog that runs towards you, not away. Mm-hmm. And also her breath smells like she ate a dead bird. Not a bird that she killed, like an actual bird that was dead. It's sitting there decomposing. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, she is definitely the kind of dog that she would never run away. I wouldn't even have to leash Suki anywhere I went. Ever. She would never run away from me, ever. She wanted to be by mama. And it was great. And then if somebody new came around, she'd be like, when we would walk around the block, it would take us a long time because Suki was like, she was like running for mayor and she was like meeting her constituents on the street. She didn't even want to, she would pee it all out in one hit. And then she'd be like, let's walk around. Who's out here? And then that would be the thing we would do. And I'd be like, all right, okay, here we go. And she'd run up to everybody, you know, but she was very sweet. She was very, very sweet. Any any standout celebrity dog stories that you want to share? Um, well, Fran Drescher is a close friend, and she has had many dogs in her life. So, you know, she had Esther, who was on the nanny. Sorry, she had Chester, who was on the nanny. Then after Chester came Esther. And then now after Esther, she has Angel. And, uh, you know, I think... Well, I, I start sounding like Fran when I start talking about Fran. I'm going to be careful about that. Um, but you know, so no, <laughs> sorry. Uh, the thing about Fran was so connected to her dog. She kind of made the blueprint for me for what it would be like when I got Suki. So Fran was like, yeah, well, you just take them everywhere. They're small. You throw them in a bag. They come. It's no big deal. This is it. So whenever Fran was around, I'm like, where's Chester? Where's Esther? Where, you know, so, but she also had very strong connections. All of her dogs. Fran's dogs only care about Fran. Fran is their focus. They are imprinted. It's like a Jurassic Park with dinosaurs. They imprint on one person. Fran, it's incredible. Now, her dogs are all very sweet, but they Fran is the one. She is like the beacon of light. So when I got Suki, I was like, I wasn't the beacon of light, but I certainly was, you know, she wasn't that interested in like, she wouldn't like see the kids and be like, great, pick me up. It's somebody else to play with. She'd be like, it's fine. I'm all right. I mean, I'll hang with mama. If you're here, I'll hang with you. Right. But if I leave the room, she no, put me down. Put me down. I want to know where mama's going. Right. So she has to hear me, has to see me. So I think that Fran laid the blueprint for me of how you, you know, the dog is your responsibility. That is your child, so to speak. And you have to take care of them in that way. So I was like, okay, so we don't leave her. I don't board her. I never boarded Suki. Never once in her life did I give her to any place, any facility to take care of her. If I couldn't bring Suki with me, someone came and stayed in my house with her. It was not dog Do I even was... need to ask where she slept? 
She slept on the bed. What do you mean? And not only that, we have a, okay, we live in Manhattan. So the bed has drawers underneath it because, you know, there's no room in Manhattan. So you have to have storage. So we built special, there there are no stairs big enough to get Suki up on our bed. So we had custom made steps built and covered with carpeting so that Suki could walk up literally just climb up the steps and then go. And we had a pair, we had a pair, a set of steps in Connecticut and in Manhattan. And now the cats love it, but you know, yeah. I mean, and it wouldn't even matter if I didn't have them because if I didn't have them, Suki would be like, "Mm, uh, uh, uh," and she'd be tortured for me to pick her up. So I'm like, but I can't deal with this because she can't get up and down off the bed by herself because it's so tall. Like I want to say literally it's like hip height when you're standing next to it. So you have to like, even as a person, you have to jump up. You had ADA requirements for your dog. Perfect. She needed steps. Exactly. So I was like, okay, well, you know, (laughs) either she cries or we accommodate her and it felt easy enough. And, you know, so we got the steps. Laurie Levine, thank you so much. These are great stories and I do think they will help because it is a subject most people don't want to talk about. And you lived it deeply in 2020 and may 2021 and beyond be much better for you and for all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And it was a privilege, to be honest. I feel like I was honoring their memory by having conversation about them and sharing with you my life and the kids and Jan. I feel very proud of the, the house and the home and the family we've built. A big thank you to Laurie Levine for sharing her story and her experiences, one of love, loss, and grief. I want to thank you for listening today. Please follow and subscribe to The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app, on Spotify, or on our YouTube channel. All the links are at longleashshow.com. And don't forget, we have a number of other shows here at Dog Podcast Network. You can find our award-winning podcast, Dog Cancer Answers, and our flagship show, Dog Edition. All the links to the full slate of shows are on our network website at dogpodcastnetwork.com. Here at Dog Podcast Network, or DPN as we call it, we would love to know what you think of what we're doing. And you can let us know what you think by just clicking on the little blue microphone icon that is located at the bottom right of every episode page on our website, and you can leave us a voicemail there. You can also find us on all the social media channels, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. All the links are at longleashshow.com. And that is also where you can subscribe to our free newsletter. Oh, and if you got something out of today's conversation with Laurie Levine, please do tell a friend about The Long Leash and Dog Podcast Network so that we can continue to grow our audience of dog lovers around the world. Thank you so much for downloading and hitting that play button today. I'm James Jacobson. I'll be back next week. And on behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.